probably know the passage. I mean, do we really know this passage? I don't know. Probably heard it before. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, the prophet says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Isaiah says, I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. It's crazy, right? It's crazy. So in these verses, Isaiah gives us his account of this, this amazing vision that he had. And he says it happened, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. That's the setting he gives us. And that short historical note to start things off actually gives us a lot of important information in terms of helping us understand what was going on for Isaiah and, and his, his nation, Israel, and also why this vision was so important for him to receive right at the beginning of his public life of speaking of God for a prophet. And that's when it came, at the, near or at the beginning of his sort of public ministry, we say. His life of being a public figure speaking for God. He received this vision. Now, Isaiah lived in the kingdom of Judah, just in case you're not familiar with the, with the history, the backstory. And Judah was in the southern half of what today we call even the nation of Israel, that part of the world right there on the edge of the Mediterranean. To the north in his day was the kingdom that actually went by the name of Israel. And both Israel and Judah were Jewish kingdoms descended from the same Hebrew people who had come out of Egypt a lot of years before this. And the southern kingdom was ruled by the descendants of David, King David. And the northern kingdom had been ruled by a bunch of different short dynasties. You can read about that in the book of you know, First and Second Kings. A bunch of different short dynasties over the course of its history. So King Uzziah, as it says in verse 1, was one of those descendants of David. And he had actually ruled in the south there in the kingdom of Judah for 52 years. A nice long rule. And we're told in Second Chronicles that he had actually become king at 16 years old. Pretty young. But he had stepped up right away. Maybe not your normal teenager. Maybe that is what teenagers were like back then. 16-year-olds should be ready to roll if you need to. But that's what Uzziah had to do, and he did it. He, he stepped up to the challenge. Even though he was young, it says in Second Chronicles 26, that he had, at that time in his life, he had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He had sought God early, early in his life. He's like, I need to seek the Lord. And he did it. As a, as a teenager, and God made him prosper in his reign. And like I said, it was a long reign. But near the end of his life, something changed in Uzziah. Some, something else started happening, maybe just unchecked success for a long time. I don't know. He rebelled against God. He ended up being struck with leprosy. 
And because of that disease, based on the law that God had given Israel, he spent the last few years of his life in isolation. And his son had actually been kind of a regent and kind of ruled in his place. So the situation at the time of Isaiah 6 here, at the beginning of Isaiah's life as, again, a public figure, as a prophet, the situation at that point was that for decades under Uzziah, the kingdom had enjoyed peace and stability and, and even prosperity. It had been a good time there in Judah, but it had started to fall apart. Things had started to fall apart with the trouble towards the end of the king's reign that we were just talking about. And around the year 745 B.C., it's what we're talking about, right? Around the year 745 B.C., the king died. Uzziah died. Now, you may know this. The death of a king was always a potentially unstable time back in the day for kingdoms like this because until the next king actually you know, took the reins of power, the nation was vulnerable to instability in general or attack from without. It was a time you would attack if you were an enemy. And the kingdom, again, called Israel just to the north, the, the, Israel to the north, it had been constantly experiencing that kind of instability. So if you lived in Judah... At this point in history, it was probably present in your mind the, the, the danger of that kind of instability as Uzziah passed off the scene. And not only that, to add to the situation, the real power in that part of the world was not Judah or Israel. It was called the Assyrian Empire. You probably heard about it in your ancient history classes. And at this point, right at this point in history, they had been quiet for a while. There had been years where you don't have to like worry about Assyria too much. They hadn't really given anyone any problems. But about five years before Uzziah died, and this is a matter of you know, historical record, you can study it. About five years before Uzziah died, there was a new emperor that had ascended to the Assyrian throne. And that emperor was like way more into thinking about conquests and expanding his territory than the emperors before him, just before him, had been, that Assyrian emperor. So just a few years after chapter 6, Judah would actually face an invasion from that part of the world. So you had some legitimate national security issues in Jude, the kingdom of Judah at this time. And also, the kingdom of, of Judah itself was not what it had actually, it wasn't what it had been. It wasn't just that they had unstable or aggressive neighbors it was that their own society had become pervaded by spiritual deadness, by rebellion against God, and, and a pride and a luxury that resulted in a culture full of sin and evil. And you can read about that in the prophecy of Isaiah, in the prophecy of like uh, Jeremiah as well. And so you had this culture that had experienced a long good time and then some years now of, of what happens to a culture when when pride and luxury and rebellion and spiritual deadness sit in, set in, and you have a culture now pervaded by really sin and evil. And that's what the prophets of Isaiah's day were, that's what they were facing. So if you can imagine, it was that kind of situation that Isaiah was in and that the whole nation was in. And it was into that kind of world that God broke in and interrupted Isaiah one day with this. So again, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. That's the beginning of his vision. So in the year of national tragedy, right, this regime change, growing turmoil, right in the middle of that, 
God gave Isaiah a vision. And one of the ways to understand what's going on here is that I think a helpful way to look at it is to see that what God did in response to everything going on in the world around Isaiah was to pull back the curtain and allow him to see what was really going on. I think that's, that's an important sort of way to understand this vision. You got a lot going on, Isaiah. And it's almost like God said, let me just pull back the curtain for you for a second. I'm going to show you what's really going on. A lot of people today want to know what's really going on. I mean, imagine if God gave you that offer. He appeared in your room. You know it in your mind. Like, that's God, not a fallen angel, definitely God. And he's like, do you want to know what's really going on? <laughs> yes, right? Maybe you know some people who think they know what's really going on. I don't know if you know anybody like that. Maybe you actually know what's really going on. If you do, please don't tell the rest of us. It'll probably freak us out. I'm actually too scared to know. Um, so I'm not interested in hearing what's really going on. But whether you think you've got it all figured out or, or maybe you're just as confused as I am, looking at all of the complexity, right? All the layers, history, the problems that seem like they have no solution when you look out there in terms of government or money or any, any of the solutions people talk about. Whatever your stance is to everything going on today in our day, what we have here in our hands is the prophet Isaiah's testimony to the time that God let him see what was really going on. And what he saw, and it's so important, isn't it? What he saw is that what's really going on is not some conspiracy theory. It's not some secret plan by powerful people. And, and even when there are backroom dealings and plots going on with rich people or powerful interests that most people don't know about, even if that is going on, even that's not what's really going on. What's really going on is whatever's happening in the most powerful, most real place there is, the throne room of God. Thank you, brother. That's, that's where the real action is. At the top. In the throne room of God. That's where the real decisions get made. That's where the real plans get laid. If it doesn't matter there. Think about this. If something doesn't matter there in front of God's throne, then in the end, it really doesn't matter at all, does it? If it's not important to talk about in front of God's throne, if it's not the kind of subject you would get into right in front of God's throne, it, if it's not a big deal there, then it doesn't matter what anyone says. It's not really a big deal. It's not really a big deal. If it doesn't register to God sitting on his throne, then it doesn't register at all. And anyone who's ignorant of that, anyone who's not aware of how important this scene that Isaiah sees is, then that person doesn't know what's really going on. It doesn't matter how much money they have or what kind of connections they have or what kind of strings they can pull. If they're in the, they're in the dark, if they ignore God's throne, that's just all there is to it. God is the most important person there is. And anyone who doesn't take him into account is missing the biggest thing they could miss. And God wanted Isaiah to remember this. That's what he wanted Isaiah to have front and center. And so he gave him this vision. Verse 1, he's got, he sees God sitting on a throne. 
God's the true and divine king. He's the real 1%. He sits on the eternal throne. And the truth is that, as John's gospel says, no one has ever seen God. And that's true in one sense, right? In terms of his essential being, there's all kinds of very interesting theology with what John means there when he says no one has at any time seen God because he's spirit. That would be sort of the theological track you could go down if you like to think about those things. Evidently, spirit is invisible, right? I'm not an expert, but it's what the Bible points us to. But Jesus also said that if you've seen him, remember the verse? You've seen the Father. Jesus was willing to start working with that idea of the possibility of seeing God. And throughout the whole Bible, the fact is that God makes himself visible to men and women in order to teach us truths about himself. He just does that through the whole Bible. And when God does that for someone, then it can be truly said that they saw God. If God gives you a vision of who he is to teach you something about who he is, then you can say, I saw God. So when you see God choose to consistently reveal himself in certain ways, certain patterns which show up across different visions like this, what you have is something true about God that he wants us to know. That makes sense, right? And the fact is that God often reveals himself sitting on a throne. And over and over again, it's the highest, most terrible, and awe-inspiring throne you could ever see. That's just consistent. It's the eternal throne. It's the throne of the universe. Moses and the elders of Israel saw it. Ezekiel saw it, rolling through the earth over wheels covered with eyes, escorted by four-headed cherubim, whatever they are. But they can fly. That's what Ezekiel saw. Daniel saw it. And when Daniel saw it, it looked like, a, it looked like God was sitting on a throne made of fire, whatever that even means. And there was fire flowing out of it like a river. Imagine that throne. Sometimes when people see it, they see it surrounded by hosts of spirits ready to do God, just standing at attention, ready to do God's bidding. Imagine being the back of that scene and just seeing like over the, whatever it would even mean, the heads of spirits or however that even works. And all the way in the distance, there's the throne. You can only imagine how small Isaiah felt, standing there and looking up at the seat of all power. And in fact, he says in verse 1, look at that. He says God was sitting on a throne, and he says it, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. God absolutely towers over everyone and everything else, just like World Trade Center, nothing, right? You know, we say, we use a word, you maybe used it yourself, God is transcendent. It's kind of like what we mean about someone when we, when we say, like, something is beneath someone. Like, that's beneath that person. That's beneath you, right? That person transcends that thing or that issue. But God transcends everything. Everything is beneath him. And the majesty of who he is, Isaiah says, filled that place. That's the idea of the vision of the robe there. It wasn't a bathrobe. It was, a, it was glory, right? It was the king's robe, the king's glory, filling filling the place. Now, notice, though, that Isaiah does not actually really directly describe God himself in the vision. He describes the thing around, things around God in the vision. For instance, in verse 2, he says, above the throne, he says, 
were seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. So each one of these, this is true, with each one had six wings and each one used two to cover his face. So they were big enough to cover the face. Maybe you've seen people try to draw pictures of this. They always look crazy, right? Um, with two, he's covering his feet. So he got wings, wings. And then with two, he flew. Six wings, right? Sorry, he didn't look like that. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> Seraphim may have words with me when they see me in heaven, like, yo. And it says, verse 3, they're crying out to each other. To each other. Isn't that crazy? They're yelling this to each other. Holy, holy, holy. I wonder if it's like back and forth. Is the other one answering? Is the Lord God of hosts? Right? The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says when they did that, the posts of the door. So Isaiah is either standing outside looking in through the door, or maybe he's in the throne room and the door is behind him. However this vision works, actually like the first one, maybe he's standing outside looking in. The, the posts of the door are shaken, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, the, in verse 2 there, the word seraphim, you might know this, it's, that's an English, not translation, it's a transliteration of the Hebrew word, which would be like seraphim or something. Dr. Dominic Hernandez can tell you how to say it when he comes, since he went to Haber Horsham. It's, it's just the Hebrew word written in English letters there. So if you read that word, you're like, oh, and above it stood the seraphim, and you're like, wait, what's that? You're not crazy. It's not an English word. And usually when you see that in a translation, it's because the translators don't actually know how to translate that word. So they're just like, uh, write it in English, right? This, the word seraphim is from the Hebrew word meaning to burn, which is crazy. So the word here means, it means like burning ones. The I am is plural. So it means like burning ones, as if, as if they themselves are, are made of fire, almost, whatever that would mean. But clearly it's sentient, powerful, intelligent fire, however that would work. But that's what Isaiah sees. So how huge and holy is God? Well, if you try to get near his throne, even before you get to him, he's surrounded by his servants who I think you realize are beings of power beyond anything any of us have ever met. They use two of their wings to fly right near the presence of God himself. And that's a big deal in the Bible. They can get close to God. To, to have access to the nearness of God's presence says something huge about you. And they're able to move coals from the altar. That's clearly a big deal. And they, they know and speak about these deep truths. Their voice alone, we saw, shakes the walls of the holy place. And those are just God's servants. Right? Those beings, like in his presence, cover their faces. But what they're not is quiet, right? We saw this, verse 3. They're crying out to each other. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So the idea seems to be something like Isaiah heard this as like a continuous song in the throne room. Like this is what you're hearing if you're there. And, and to understand what they're singing, you have to know that in Hebrew, the way you expressed that something was a lot of something was to say it twice. So if someone was really strong, you would say, he's strong, strong. You wouldn't say really strong. You'd say strong, strong. That's how you would say it. That means like he's like mega strong. God here, he's not just big in this scene. He's big, big. That's how you would say it. And it seems that in all of scripture, repeating words twice is enough. That's, you just say it twice and you get the point across. You never get something three times. You never get strong, strong, strong. This is not how Hebrew really talks. Except here. And it's a big deal. There's one time when you get the triple emphasis 
God isn't just holy. He's holy, holy. He's the holiest of everything that is holy. But actually, even that's not it. The seraphim saying, no, no. He's, you get it? Holy, holy, holy. That's the idea. It's not just repetition. It's like increased emphasis. He's the holiest of the holy of all the holy, or whatever that would even mean. And, you know, three is a big deal in Scripture. Thrice holy. He's totally unique. He's completely untouchable. In the year that Judah's king died, remember the setting, Isaiah saw a vision of God to remind him that whatever else was messed up with human government, the real king cannot be messed with. He can't be messed up. He can't be stained by any scandal because he's holy, holy, holy. He's totally above any sin, any dirtiness. He can't be disgraced by failure because he's never failed. He's untainted by all the things that taint every other ruler there's ever been. There's no skeleton in his closet. There's no mistake he's ever made. He's never had to delete a tweet. Never got banned from Twitter, whatever. I don't know why I said that. In fact, he's totally separate from everything else. He's not even part of our world. He's not contained by the universe. Think about this. He's not made up of the universe. He's not contained by the universe. And yet, I'm not even going to act like I understand this. I'm just going to say what I think the text says, because I don't understand this, but I think it's what it says. He's so outside of our world that his glory, that his glory pervades everything. That's what verse 3 says. The whole earth is full of his glory. His, his presence pervades everything. Every square inch of the earth is alive with God's presence, with his holy presence. Think about that. The truth is, what's really going on is that our world is alive with God's presence. Everywhere you go, every path through the woods, every city street, Every staircase, every elevator, every bus, every car, every office, every forest. The alley near you, maybe, that you don't want to walk down. Maybe, maybe there's a little space, a little meadow that no one's ru- ruined yet. You're like, I know God's there. The place is awesome. hope the developer doesn't get his hand on it. The beach at dawn, obviously. Every continent. Every place people go. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the truth is, that has the potential to be the best news you'll ever hear. Isn't that true? You think about all the emptiness that people struggle with. The loneliness. And part of it is because for years, they've been taught, since they were little kids, little wide-eyed, impressionable kids, taught that the universe is cold and dead and empty. You know, all those charts you always look at. They're always cool. You like looking at them when you're a little kid, the solar system, the universe. Where does it show you where God is? He's not there in the pictures, is he? That nothing's really out there. That no one is really there. It's just us and the cold, hard world. But it's not true. That's actually not true. The world is alive with the glory of God. His eyes are everywhere. He's always seeing Isn't this so cool? He's always hearing. He's always speaking wherever you are. And if you don't see his glory, it's not because it's not there. 
It's because you're blind. And God is all about curing blindness. Isn't that what Jesus did when he walked around? Jesus is like, I got you. If you want to see, Jesus is the one for you. He's all about it. And actually, the thing that causes our blindness is not really just some kind of impairment. It's not like, well, it's just a a lack or something. It's actually the thing that Isaiah becomes painfully aware of in verse 4 and 5. As this vision gets more and more intense, look what happens starting in verse 4. We read this right. The post of the door, it says, they were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah says, so, so his response, to, he's getting like, you know when it just gets to be too much? You feel like you're just going to come apart. The intensity of it all, the weight of it all. Things are starting to shake. And what he realizes, verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I'm undone. Such an interesting thing that would come out of him in this moment. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and one of the seraphim, here they are again, flew to me around the throne, holy, 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 and he comes rushing down to Isaiah. And he had stopped at the altar. There was an altar there. We didn't know that, but there was. Burning with some kind of coals on it, maybe an altar of incense. Maybe that's what the smoke was from, right? And he, this is crazy. The being made of fire needed tongs. See that? There's tongs in heaven. Anyway, he needed tongs to take a coal from the altar. It must be a pretty powerful coal. And he touches, he flies right up to Isaiah. You got to see this. Touches his lips. And he says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. So God is, is fiery and powerful huge, terrifying, all the things we're looking at, and, and merciful. Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah knew God's voice. He was God's messenger. Isaiah had trafficked in the things of God. And yet, when he saw this vision, he felt just like any of us would feel in this situation. Just like you or me. He immediately, what he did, what, what he felt was his own sinfulness. And, and this, this need to escape God's presence. You might, you might have felt that coming to church. I mean, hopefully you feel the rest of what we're going to talk about. But have you ever felt that? I, I mean, I remember the first time I think the Lord really revealed himself to me. This is my number one. Feel. I wasn't like, I got, I'm, I'm pretty good. Glad I've been a good kid. That's not my thought at all. It was kind of like, oh no. <laughs> I'm in big trouble. Right? And that's Isaiah. That's, that's, his, that's his feeling there. And you would think that would be the end. You get a glimpse of God. And you see how powerful and holy God is. You don't belong there. He probably doesn't want you, so just leave. Just run away. Back to small, dark things where it's messed up, but at least it's familiar, right? But look at what the mighty servants of God do for Isaiah. God wasted no time. As soon as Isaiah acknowledged his sinful state, as soon as he just said, I'm messed up. 
And my whole people are messed up. Isn't that interesting? We're all, we're all messed up. And I am just like them. You know what I am, Lord? I'm a stinking American. And I can complain about it all day. Right? I dwell in the middle of a people of unclean lips. And I'm just like them. But as soon as Isaiah acknowledged that, the seraphim flew to him. God was like, however it happened. This this moment of mercy, this personal touch for a weak and failing man right in the throne room of God, it should probably actually shock us. We should probably be like, what? If you think about it, in our lives, we're so accustomed to finding I think this is true. I don't know if you've experienced it differently. Maybe you've lived a different life than me. But I think we're really accustomed to finding less humanity, less mercy, less people really caring about us the higher we go up in important circles. Right? Like the higher you go up in something important, it's like the less they care about who you are. Right? I mean, how would it work out if we walked into the CEO's office at Google or something and you try to talk about your personal problems? Somehow you get access. I don't know. Maybe you steal someone's card or something. Walk into the CEO's office, he's like, listen, I have had a rough day. <laughs> or whatever. How would that work out? They wouldn't even let me in. They wouldn't let you in. What about the Oval Office? Walk into the Oval Office. I've been struggling, Mr. President. Right, does anybody care what you're going through in the West Wing? No, I didn't mean it like that. I'm sure there's some compassionate people there. That's not not the point. (laughs) But think about this. In the most exclusive place, the most exclusive place in all of reality, what does Isaiah find? This is awesome. He finds mercy. Now, here's the question. Here's the important question. Why? Why should it be this way? Why should the servants of the one on the throne so quickly and freely take care of the sin of this visitor? Like, why were they like, we got you. If you're sinful, if you don't belong here, we got you. And the answer is left unsaid in this scene. Isaiah got to enjoy God's mercy, but it wasn't explained to him. The one on the throne evidently didn't talk to him and explain how that could have happened. It was the servant who spoke about the situation, and that was... The end of the vision, as far as that part of it was concerned, a couple other things happened. But as far as Isaiah particularly, that was sort of the end of it. But this wasn't Isaiah's only vision. Again, Isaiah was a prophet who was gifted a lifetime of seeing and hearing God. And over the course of his life, he received enough insight to begin to piece together some answers to the riddle of God's mercy that day in the throne room. I do think that that's part of what's going on in the book of Isaiah. And as we read on in Isaiah's prophecy, we're led to, the, to a truth about this king on the throne, I think that ends up boggling the mind even more, maybe even more than the way the vision of the throne boggles the mind. I want to read a few passages here, and you're welcome to turn if you'd like, or you're welcome to just listen. Uh, but... In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, other famous verses, make it feel like Christmas. But in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, we actually hear about another throne. And this one is not in heaven. 
it's on earth. But it's so connected to the throne in heaven that the man who sits on the throne is called Mighty God. Look at Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal, the passion, right, of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So this is the throne of David, which is God's kingdom on earth. This throne in this passage rules the whole world, and it says a man sits on this throne. He's the son who's born to us. And yet, like I pointed out, he's called mighty God. That means that this throne of this man on earth is also God's throne. So you could say this is a man who sits on the throne of God on earth. Or you could say this must be God sitting on the throne as a man. And you might be here tonight, and you might have all the pieces of the puzzle to know exactly what that means. You might be like, yes, I know this story, right? Probably most of us. I don't think Isaiah did, though, as he received the visions in chapter 6 and chapter 9. But again, this wasn't all he saw. He saw more. He also saw visions of what the kingdom of this king would be like. I'm going to read from Isaiah 32. Again, you can turn or you can just listen. Isaiah 32, verses, or starting in verse 1. I think Isaiah just kept getting more pieces of the puzzle. Isaiah 32. Behold, Isaiah says, and he sees it, he prophesies of it, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind, and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen, and the heart of the rash will understand knowledge. And the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. And also the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. Even the needy, yes, speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he will stand. And so you have sort of the, the world as it is today described there in the last few verses, but you have the kingdom of this king described in the first uh, four and even five verses of Isaiah's vision. So again, Isaiah saw more to the story. He just kept seeing more. So the holy divine king we're seeing would become a man. He would rule humanity as one of humanity. God was willing to become a baby. He was born like us and he lived like us. And he would actually live out his life and earn the right to the title that was his by birth. And it's one of the ways to see what Jesus was doing. He deserved to be the king by virtue of his descent, and by virtue of the fact that he was God and man. But then he lived his life out and actually earned the title as well. 
And when he rules, is the idea of Jesus of Isaiah's vision here, he's not only going to be high and huge and terrifying, but near and full of justice, Isaiah says. He would be a man who was a shelter from the storm. I think that's the idea of that verse in verse 2. Finally, there's a man, the king, who can be a shelter from the storm. He would be a man, it says, if you look at verses 3 and 4, who, are, who, who will fill in the gaps in everyone's thinking and finally lead us to what's true and what's real. He's going to set everything straight. And Isaiah sees visions of this kingdom on earth. And he saw one more truth. He saw that the same man would not only rule as king, he would do something else. And I, again, think something that's even more shocking to, to our minds, especially when we first run into it. If you turn to, you're probably expecting it, Isaiah 53. Or you can just listen, Isaiah 53, verse 3. Same man being spoken of here. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he, this, this king would also be the man to step up and take responsibility for the failure of man. From the first man to every man who's ever lived. So again, he, he earned the right to be king not only by his wisdom and his righteousness and his displays of love, but also by this ultimate act of taking responsibility. He manned up, you could say, Jesus, in the ultimate way. It's like he was saying, I'll take responsibility for every sin, every failure, every act of evil committed by every man and every woman since the beginning. I'll, I'll take it. I'll pay every debt. I'll own every evil word. Put it on my back. I can carry it. And it says... God laid it all on him, and he did carry it, right? He carried it right up to the cross. He bore our iniquities. Imagine that, right? And, and he took even the judgment of God for all of it. And then he took the ultimate sentence on our sin, and he served it himself. He died in our place, condemned and alone. And that is the ultimate answer as to why in the, the, that day in the throne room, when Isaiah realized that he had stumbled into God's presence, that God had you know, ushered him in, and everything there was holy, but he was not. Why didn't his sin consume him? You know, again, what opened the door to the kind of mercy Isaiah received that day? Why was it so easy for this, this seraphim to bridge the gap between the fiery holiness of the throne and the tiny, dirty sin of the man. And it was because, in God's way of looking at things, the problem of that gap, that distance, was already solved. In Isaiah's time, it was still future, of course. But when Jesus Christ stepped forward as God's Son on earth, the mighty God, strong to save, and he went to the cross in Isaiah's place, he showed that God on the throne was also God who wanted to be God with us. 
He didn't want his holiness to be a barrier to us. Isn't that incredible? That's not what God wanted. He knows that his holiness doesn't just consume our sin. It consumes us along with our sin if he doesn't do something about that situation. And so he did do something about it. And the mercy that Isaiah experienced ultimately came from the cross of Christ because Jesus was going to come and be crucified for Isaiah's sin. Then forgiveness could be extended to Isaiah like we saw. And so Isaiah helps us see by, by writing it all down. I'm so glad he did. He helps us see that the holiness of God cannot be stained by any sin. In fact, again, it's so holy that in Christ, it doesn't consume the man. It makes the sinful man holy himself. The holiness of God is so holy that it can't get dirty, but it can make you clean. Contagious purity, right? We think of dirtiness that spreads. Imagine cleanness that spreads. Imagine you could buy a product and you just buy it and you just put it in your house and your, it just, your whole house just starts. If your kids walk through it and walk through your house, everywhere they go, your floor is getting cleaner. <laughs> We're laughing because we just can't even imagine like that. How would that even work? But that's how God's holiness works. In his mercy, in Christ, it doesn't consume me. It doesn't destroy me. It rescues me. It preserves me. It finally takes care of my issues. Isn't that, isn't that good news? It finally gets rid of my sin. It can defeat everything that's defeated me. And so, in a time of political upheaval, in a time of turmoil, in a time of national uncertainty, the thing that Isaiah actually needed to see was that no matter what was happening politically, God was over it all, far above. And not just any God, but the huge, holy, merciful God, the real God, the living God. We, we need God, the divine king, Isaiah 6. We need God, the human king, Isaiah 32. And we need both, right? And that's who Jesus is. And if you don't know Christ here tonight, I want to ask you to hear one thing that Seraphim cry in the homeroom, uh, the homeroom, in the throne room, school. I want to ask you to hear one thing that Seraphim are crying in the throne room. They, they say, the whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, Isaiah was seeing a vision, again, back in chapter 6. He was seeing a vision of a place where the glory of God was filling every square inch. It was just visceral, and it was the most weighty, overwhelming experience he had ever known. But the seraphim say that actually, it's not just that God's throne room is full of glory. It's actually the whole earth is full of it. The whole earth is just, as I said, as alive with the glory of God as this throne room. And that day, maybe it wasn't so much that Isaiah was taken to another place as much as it was that his eyes were just opened. And again, he could see what was really going on. He could see the way things really were. And if you don't know it tonight, that's the truth. Maybe when you walk down your street, it's hard to see because people have messed things up so much, right? Maybe when you drive around or you ride the bus or you listen to the news, maybe it's hard to see that the whole earth is full of God's glory. But here's the truth. Whether you know it or not, for those of you who don't know Jesus Christ, whether you know it or not, you walk around every day in God's presence. Apostle Paul said, in him 
we live and move and have our being. Everything is naked and open to him. He knows our thoughts. He searched out every hidden plan, every, every motive. He knows our words, the Bible says, before we say them. He's familiar with every path we take through life, the way you go to work, the way we handle stress, the people who've hurt us, the way we give in to temptation, the way we've let people down, the way we've served gods that aren't the true God. And if we don't hear the message of Jesus, his holiness and the weight of his presence, one day they're going to consume us and crush us. That's what Isaiah was worried about. And we'll face the judgment for all our sin. But it doesn't have to be that way. So you can be like Isaiah. All you have to do is realize that you're in the presence of a holy God and you're a sinner and just cry out for mercy. Admit you're a sinner. Admit it. You might be a gay sinner. You might be a straight sinner, a straight up sinner, right? You might be selfish or mean or judgmental or addicted or rebellious or destructive. Basically, every sin there is is represented in the past of the people here in this church. It's <laughs> one of the great things about this church. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians lists all the things I just said. And then he says to the church, and eh, you guys were like that. That's Christians. That's why, that's why we can't be judgmental. All those things is what we were. But now we're washed. Now we're made holy by the blood of Jesus. And if you confess that you're a sinner and you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, the, the Lord who died for you, you'll be saved. Just, just as assuredly as that coal touched Isaiah's lips that day, the blood of Jesus covers everyone who calls on his name and they're made clean and whole. And God calls you righteous and he gives you the promise of eternal life. And that's there for anyone. If you're breathing, God wants you in his kingdom and his family. And his blood can cover your sin. So to loop back around to where we started tonight and the vision that God gave Isaiah when the king died. I don't know, maybe there's some of us here tonight that need that exact same kind of vision. And we can actually get it right there in Isaiah 6. You don't need to necessarily have God pull back the curtain in our bedroom tonight or something. We have it right there in Isaiah 6. Never forget. Even if things get crazier, even if things get more confusing, if it starts to seem like our lives might be at the mercy of people and forces beyond our control or even beyond our ability to figure out, the way to peace and a life that pleases God is to remember that all that really matters is what matters to God on his throne. And in Christ, we matter to God on his throne. Every son and daughter of God, every blood-bought follower of Jesus, not the elite, the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, isn't that what the Bible says? Who've put their trust in him. Our lives of perseverance preaching the gospel, the offer of God's grace to the world, the building up of the body of Christ, the care for the family of God, the praising of God's name in every place. You are pressing through the trials and the temptations, recognizing Jesus as Lord, the worship and the love of God spread across the world. These are the things that matter to God. That's what rates with him on his throne. And that's why even someone like Isaiah could find the mercy that he found. I want to just turn now, and you, again, you don't have to turn. I just want to read to you Psalm 37. Uh, 
It's a little awkward. I have to pick up my guitar. I'm going to do it. I'm going to read Psalm 37. I think it's a fitting end. These are the words of the Lord. A Psalm of David. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord they shall inherit the earth for yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you'll look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. And you hear Jesus' voice here. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and they shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Imagine if there was too much peace. Too much. Nobody can handle it overflowing peace. They will delight themselves in the abundance of peace when that king reigns on his throne and he's a shelter for the, from the storm. All these things will be true. And Psalm 37.10 says, it's just a little while. Don't freak out. Don't fret. The king's coming. God's on the throne. Nothing's going to stop that. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Whatever. I've set my king on my holy hill in Zion. Isn't that Psalm 2? The nations are like chaff before him, the Bible says. They're counted as nothing. They're not a drop in the bucket. He sits over the circle of the earth, and he beholds everything going on with the sons of men. The great king, who's also the merciful king, who's also our king. He loves us. And he's coming soon. And that's all that matters. And that's what's really going on. And that's all we need to know. So let's stand, let's pray. We're going to sing one more song together. Father, we thank you for your word, your promises, Lord. We thank you for pulling back the curtain for Isaiah and for us. We pray that you'd breathe that confidence, that joy, that resilience that knowing that breeds, Lord. 
Oh 